Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 326th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you today by the American Health Information Management Association. And joining me this morning as my guest co-host is Holly Louie. Holly is substituted for Dr. Erica Reamer, who is on assignment. Holly is the past president of the Healthcare Business and Management Association. Good morning, Holly. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Chuck, and hello, everyone. This morning, our lead story is about burnout. In this case, it's about physician burnout. That's right. Dr. Suzette Sutherland at the University of Washington School of Medicine will report on how they're training scribes in the urology department. Looking forward to her report. Also on today's Talk 10 Tuesday, we're going to hear from nationally recognized coding authority Terry Fletcher. Terry will re- continue her reporting on the areas that she's uncovered in a review of thousands, thousands of physician records. Talk about burnout, Chad. <laughs> Indeed, talk about burnout. Risk adjustment and risk assessments continue to be major issues. We have two reports this morning. Marie Morin returns with a report on her reporting on risk adjustment payment methodologies. And, of course, you have a book report on risk adjustment. Yes, I do. Later in the broadcast, I'll interview AMA author Sherry Poe Bernard about her new book, Risk Adjustment, Documentation, and Coding. That's right. Also on the broadcast, Glenn Krause has the Talk 10 Tuesday CDI report. He's going to report on how CDI aligns with the ancient physician oath, first, do no harm. First, we need to check in with Dr. Larry Field at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to visit the new ICD Monitor webcast subscription portal. See the link in the handout tab in today's program or visit the ICD University web store. Here now is Dr. Larry Field. Good morning, Chuck. Thanks for having me again this morning. Good morning to the audience. Uh, last week, I uh, found an interesting uh, settlement posted by the Department of Justice against an internist in Maryland. And it had to do with uh, doing some autonomic testing and some mini mental uh, tests that were being billed out. And I'm not going to comment specifically on the allegations, but on the on how the um, news post was relying on LCDs to be the main enforcer of what was happening. So the gentleman had done some autonomic testing. Uh, the Novitas which is the local Medicare administrative contractor, had issued LCD on the topic, and the Department of Justice uh, quoted that the gentleman had violated the LCDs, and that was the main uh, influence on trying to go after um, the physician in this case. Again, I'm not going to comment on whether he did or didn't, but wanted to remind the audience that LCDs are not necessarily binding when you move to the ALJ level and that there are items that are binding on the ALJ, such as Social Security law, executive orders essentially by the Secretary of Health and Human Services, um, and NCDs. But the LCDs, when you go to the ALJ, are not um, binding on the ALJ, although the ALJ would need to find good reason to not follow them. 
So please make sure that uh, ideally you're following an LCD, but the LCD is not the law, and to keep that in mind when you're defending. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Dr. Field. That was Dr. Larry Field. Dr. Field is the treasurer of the American College of Physician Advisors. It's Tuesday, it's May 22nd, 2018, and you're listening to the 326th edition of Talk 10 Tuesdays. Stand by. Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you today by AHIMA, the American Health Information Association, inviting you to not one, but two great meetings in Baltimore. Attend the CDI Summit, the premier industry event of the year, August 6th and 7th, to hear the nation's leading CDI experts speak about the challenges and successes affecting the CDI industry. Then stay for the CDI Academy, August 8th through 10th, to learn ways to develop and enhance your existing CDI program. And for a limited time, when you register for both the CDI Summit and CDI Academy, you'll receive 50% off admission to CDI Academy. But hurry, this offer ends on June 5th. Visit ahima.org backslash CDI combo to register. Thank you, Clark Anthony. We have two reports this morning on risk. And leading off our coverage, Marie Morin, who returns to the broadcast. Her latest reporting generated a lot of buzz, and today she has an update on risk assessment. Good morning, Marie. Welcome to the program. What's the latest? Good morning, Chuck. Well, we all know that the hierarchical condition categories, or HCCs, are based on qualifying diagnosis as submitted on claims, and we also know that not all diagnosis codes qualify as HCC. So it's imperative we have an accurate documentation. You won't believe this, but I recently saw a physician note where the physician wrote, patient has CKD on dialysis followed by nephrology. Well, obviously, the patient is in, the note is incomplete because the patient probably has end-stage renal failure, and the patient is also on dialysis. The CKD unspecified will not qualify as an HCC. Adding additional documentation to qualify this as ESRD will um, qualify as an HCC and will affect the physician's risk adjustment factor, or RAF. Coders can query the physician to clarify this documentation. Additionally, this is where outpatient documentation improvement plays a huge role in helping achieve a correct RAF score. We also know that when CMS is conducting what they call RADV audits or risk adjustment data validation. They're looking for more than just codes or diagnosis. They want to know, is the documentation legible? Always a problem. Does it support the diagnosis submitted on the claim? Is it signed with valid credentials and provider type? A recent OIG finding indicated that as many as 28% of claims submitted contained errors that affected the reimbursement and the RAF scores. CMS does work with providers to fix these errors, but billing can help speed this along uh, by making sure that these errors are fixed before the claim ever leaves the provider. Holding up a claim can not only affect the physician RAF score, but the funds he or she received to care for the patient in the upcoming year. We also know that value-based purchasing as part of the Affordable Care Act is placing more and more emphasis on making sure claims are paid correctly and documentation supports the claims. By this point, the Obama administration had really planned to place even more emphasis on the evaluation and management note. However, the Trump administration has slowed that down a bit. 
Knowing this increased emphasis is waiting in the wings further supports the need for physician documentation, education, and documentation improvement opportunities and goes to show that we all have a role to play in making sure that our claims accurately reflect the acuity of the patient, and it is through working together that we obtain that reflection. Back to you, Holly. Thank you so much, Marie. That was Marie Morin. Marie is the director at Alvarez and Marcel Healthcare Industry Group. Chuck, what is up next today? Well, Holly, thanks very much. Our next guest on Talking About Risk is Sherry Poe Bernard. Good morning, Sherry. Welcome to Talk 10 Tuesday. I know you're here today to talk about your book, Risk Adjustment, Documentation, and Coding. So we'd like to do some interview questions with you. Sherry, what was your goal in writing this book? Thanks, Holly. I have a consulting business and have developed curriculum for many risk adjustment audit companies and also for provider and payer organizations, all of these folks wanting to improve their documentation and coding for risk adjustment. And, you know, so much of what is out there when I enter these businesses is word of mouth or opinion, and most of what I develop is um, for curriculum is based on CMS and ICD-10 or the uh, American Hospital Association's coding clinic. Um, I've got about 25 years in coding, um, education, training, publishing, so really it made a lot of sense for me to take that experience to the AMA, who's already published a book I had done, and sell them on the idea of, you know, centralizing all this information on risk adjustment into a documentation and coding book. Um, now everyone can access those citations in a single source and get their, their HCC tables and all kinds of guidance in one place. So that was, that was what I had gold, and it really makes my life easier with my consulting to be able to take my book out and say everything's here and not have to reinvent the wheel every time I go. Sounds exciting. I can't wait to read it. Who all do you think would benefit from this book, Sherry, and the various jobs in our industry? I know the title says risk adjustment, um, but the information actually has a lot broader use. Uh, under the um, MACRA, and, uh, you know, which was instituted in 2015, CMS has increased physician accountability for reporting patient severity of illness, as, as we just got through hearing about. Um, the, the use of this severity to calculate risk-adjusted cost efficiency, either through MIPS or the alternate payment methods, um, really affects physician payment going forward. The sicker the patient, the more resources are used, and, and Medicare is evaluating those u- that use versus the cost, uh, depending on the sickness of the patient. So this is going to affect up to 7% of Medicare payment bonuses, um, and, and that's, that's a big deal. So the physicians are incentivized by bonus payments to be sure that they're not over-providing on services to patients who aren't as sick, and that's all based on those diagnostic codes, so it becomes very important. I was lucky enough to have CDI expert Dr. James Kennedy as a reviewer and contributor to the book, and he really honed in on the physician perspective because the documentation portions of the book by topic focuses on what doctors need to do, and then there are coding sections focusing on what phys- on what the coders need to do. So when you say who benefits from this book, I would say anybody documenting 
diagnoses, anyone abstracting diagnosis codes. So pretty much everybody. Well, that's a big world. There's a lot of people that touch those areas that aren't actually in a job defined as risk adjustment per se. Would those people benefit for this or only those who are working in true risk adjustment jobs? I'd say both. For the individual or organization seeking to be educated, cover-to-cover reading of the book provides that great education. It sort of builds on itself as it goes through. On the job, though, the meat of the book is a quick look up by a diagnostic topic. Everything has citations identifying the source. So the, the biggest chapter is that disease-specific one by topic, and you find documentation requirements and then the coding rules right there at hand. There are lots of appendices that have the, the HCC tables and mapping to the ICD-10 codes. And there's also um, cheat sheets in there that you can photocopy to distribute in the workplace. And, um, and then also in the workplace, there's a chapter for how to build uh, coding policies. So lots in there. And then for curriculum, there's also a test bank and, and PowerPoints and all those sorts of things that are provided to the schools. That sounds really interesting. And I'm thinking even as a nurse, I can't wait to read this book. So thank you so much, Sherry. That was author Sherry Poe Bernard talking about her newest book on risk adjustment. Chuck, back to you. Here now with part four of her report on errors a physician makes is Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry. Welcome to the broadcast. Thank you, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. In the last part of our four-part series, I want to discuss the importance of an auditor that an auditor puts on the medical decision-making portion of the E&M record. According to CMS, it is the overarching criteria that drives the visit code, meaning that it is perceived as having more weight than the history and exam portion of the encounter. However, the medical decision-making is not the only factor in choosing a level of service. But again, it is the overarching criteria, and it is necessary to understand the thought process, not just to mention the scoring of an auditor when providers are trying not only to determine the final level of service, but also how to pass the audit. A major pitfall in an audited record comes from the lack of understanding on what medical decision-making actually is as it relates to the AMA documentation guidelines and CMS rules. Medical decision-making refers to the complexity of establishing a diagnosis and or selecting a management option, which is determined considering these three factors, the number of possible diagnoses or problems and or the number of management options that must be considered, the amount and or complexity of medical records, diagnostic tests, and or other information that must be obtained, reviewed, and analyzed, and then the risk of significant complications, morbidity and or mortality, as well as comorbidities associated with the patient's presenting problems the diagnostic procedures, and are the possible management options. As you'll read in Part 4 article next week, there will be an auditing and scoring table that depicts the elements for each of these levels of medical decision-making. And to qualify for a different type of medical decision-making, two of the three elements must either be met or exceeded. The types of medical decision-making are straightforward, low complexity, moderate complexity, and high complexity. So let's consider the moderate and high complexity scenarios for a minute so that you can visualize what is necessary when considering the higher levels which is where the auditing pitfalls usually come into play. Moderate complexity medical decision-making represents the cognitive labor for most physicians. You may not be surprised to learn that moderate medical decision-making is required for a routine encounter, like a level 2 hospital progress note, 99232, but you may not have realized that it also represents the cognitive labor required for a level 4 office visit for an established patient, 99214. A patient with three chronic illnesses, one with a mild exacerbation, 
and two that are stable could satisfy the risk adjustment for this level of medical decision making. So for a clinical example, an established patient presents with diabetes, hypertension, and dyslipidemia, two which are optimally and normally controlled, but the patient has reported an elevated blood pressure recording at home frequently and the patient's blood pressure is elevated at today's visit. The physician checks routine labs, modifies the patient's hypertension medication, and schedules them for a return visit in two months. No changes are made to any other medications. There's a reminder of diet and exercise protocols, as well as another five-minute discussion about smoking cessation. The three established problems of hypertension, diabetes, and dyslipidemia are added up individually for a total of four problem points. You get one point each for the stable diabetes and dyslipidemia, and then two points for the established but worsening hypertension. This equals four in high complexity. But don't stop there, as most physicians tend to do. You now have to consider the data reviewed. This encounter rates only one data point for review of labs. And notice you do not get an additional data point for ordering labs. No double dipping is allowed. So again, one point, which is straightforward complexity. And we're not done yet. Risk is also part of a medical decision-making assessment. A review of the table of risks shows that the encounter qualifies as being of moderate risk due to the presenting problem of, quote, two or more stable chronic conditions and one with mild exacerbation. So given this information, the scoring sheet or table would read high complexity, straightforward, and moderate. And since only two out of three factors must exceed or, or must meet or exceed the requirements for any given level of medical decision-making, four problem points, one data point, and moderate risk add up to moderate complexity medical decision-making. So now high complexity medical decision-making is truly complex, and you really need to hear that. Either the patient is quite ill or the physician must review a significant amount of primary data. This level of medical decision-making is required for a level three initial hospital, 99223, a subsequent hospital visit, 99233, or a level five visit for an established or new patient visit. This would need to have a severe exacerbation or a chronic problem of a chronic problem or an acute illness which threatens life or bodily function to qualify for this level of risk. The data reviewed would have to be quite extensive to reach the threshold for high complexity medical decision-making. This set of circumstances would be unusual for routine follow-up encounters. An occasional follow-up encounter, yes, but routinely, no, but may occur quite often with initial encounters. This is where the physicians tend to hold back on their documentation efforts in making that impact connection, which could make a difference not only on audit, but in their reimbursement if this encounter should have been coded higher but audited lower due to the lack of detailed information on the medical complexity of this decision. So more details on medical decision-making, make sure... You check out our Part 4 article next week in ICD-10 Monitor to complete the series on pitfalls of the E&M audit. You'll be able to see risk tables, point systems, and when, uh, when using E&M auditing services. And this will give you tools and insight to educate your physicians on proper E&M compliance, plus medical decision-making examples to make sure everything you're capturing to the highest level and not losing out on revenue that you deserve, but doing it compliantly. Holly, back to you. Thank you so much. That was an excellent presentation, and each of these sessions has been great. Chuck, I'm going to kick it to you now. With our CDI report this morning is Glenn Cross. Good morning, Glenn. Talk to us about how CDI kind of supports the ancient physician oath, first do no harm. Good morning, everyone. Physician documentation improvement programs can best achieve high performance and sustainability in positively changing physician behavioral practice patterns to expanding the current breadth and depth of CDI. And uh, I'm a firm believer that CDI expands the entire revenue cycle, including 
helping the physician adhere to the Hippocratic Oath of Do No Harm to Patients. So allow me to share with you some of the initiatives I'm currently working on in the CD or PDI program at my facility where I work. I'm partnering and collaborating with the UR department, and so I uh, am assisting with their staff when a concurrent or retrospective denial is received from the third-party payer. So I'm actually looking at records in concurrent time, not necessarily just at the diagnosis, identifying up, uh, insufficient documentation when identified as part of the UR review of the ED and the H&P documentation, which is used uh, to call in clinicals as I refer to myself and two other, uh, so they refer these uh, these cases to me in real time. Uh, I invest the time to review the completeness of the H&P and ED documentation. I take the time to work with the residents and attendings in as real time as possible, providing feedback and suggestions for enhancing the communication of patient care. And basically, I really wanted the ultimate goal of having a record speak for itself that best tells, describes, and shows the patient's story. The real focus is, is truly upon providing meaningful feedback and guidance uh, how, as to how best to ensure the record depicts and reflects the patient's true history of present illness, uh, the severity of illness, signs, symptoms. I'm looking for a strong correlation of the assessment and plan to the presenting signs and symptoms as recorded in the HPI a plan that's rational for the patient's particular assessment and clinical scenario. My goal is to ensure that physician's understanding of the patient's story is well executed and communicated right from the start, demonstrates the real need for hospital level of care, and includes differentials as well as definitive diagnosis with appropriate clinical specificity. This sets the tone for admission, assists the case managers and UR staff in securing authorization for admission, from third-party payers helps the and, and most importantly in my mind or equally as important helps the physician help the patient ensure the right financial class and puts the patient at ease in regards to observation uh, versus inpatient as more and more patients are attuned to financial status and I want to just close with this following quote from the Hippocratic Oath it says physicians uh, should be or must be uh, committed to remembering that illness may affect a person's family and economic stability. Patient's responsibility includes these related problems. If he or she or the physician does his or her best to care adequately for the sick. So CDI really plays a role in facilitating the physician's adherence to the Hippocratic Oath through effective and complete documentation that helps the case manager and UR staff fulfill their duties and responsibilities on behalf of the patient. And I just want to say, we, we, as CDI specialists, we really are working in tandem with the physician for the benefit of the patient. A byproduct or sideline of that is appropriate reimbursement for the quality of care. So with that, I'd like to toss it back to Holly. Thank you so much, Glenn. That was an excellent summary. Our lead story this morning is about burnout. In this case, is about physician burnout and how to use scribes to reduce burnout among physicians. And joining us now is Dr. Suzette Sutherland. She's at the University of Washington School of Medicine, and she has a report on how they are training scribes in the urology department. Good morning, Dr. Sutherland. Good news report about scribes, right? Yes, I think you no. Know, many people think that the physicians want to use scribes just because we're imp- uh, trying to increase our productivity. Certainly, from a hospital system standpoint, that's a positive thing. 
But at the same time, scribes add way more value than that. Of course, increasing productivity helps meet the problem that we have with patient access today, but it also helps with another problem, which is that of physician burnout. I know you've spoken about that topic a bit on this uh, Talk 10 Tuesday already, but it really helps the physician to focus more on the patient rather than many of the other challenges that have to do with uh, day-to-day operational things with respect to medicine. There was recently an article in The Atlantic that really brought this uh, problem of physician burnout home specifically that uh, talked about a situation where a patient came into the emergency room and the physician tried to do what was best for the patient from a medical standpoint, but uh, indeed had many problems trying to get her timely surgery for her heart in order to take care of her problem. And it was mostly due to computer glitches in the ER system that wouldn't allow him to schedule things appropriately, which resulted in many phone calls to the cardiologist, so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, she luckily got what she needed and and in the time that was appropriate uh, in the sense that there was no secondary consequence, but I'm sure that's not always the case. So these are some of the struggles that we often have in the day-to-day situation as we spend so much time on the operation of medicine rather than focusing on the patient. With a scribe, uh, the physician really in the clinic can focus much more on the patient, is much more in tune to some of the other nuances of what are going on, social issues with the patient rather than just the immediate physical thing that they're seeing the patient for while the scribe is documenting everything. The other thing that this really helps, we, we think about this again, productivity as well as helping with physician burnout, taking the demands away from the physician, but we forget about the other side, patient satisfaction. So it, I, our experience has been that the scribe can also really help with our patient satisfaction because the patients feel the physician is able to spend more time with the patient, look them directly in the eye rather than typing away at the computer the whole time, um, and really attend to their needs at the time that they're there and make the most out of the small amount of time sometimes that they have um, in the clinic. And so the patients feel more that their needs are being met. I will say a few words about some tips for success, I think. When you're utilizing scribes, what's most helpful is if there is a teamwork approach, meaning that the scribe works with a certain physician and understands the flow of the clinic, the type of things that that physician sees, the type of tests the physician might need to order, the questions they ask the patient, the more there is sort of a streamlined effect and understanding of whatever disease process that scribe is working with that physician, the more successful the scribes can be and the more uh, helpful they can be to that physician uh, in such a way that they oftentimes can anticipate what's coming next. Uh, so their purpose really is for documentation, but documentation, documenting appropriately, of course, we know is uh, very important, especially when it relates to things we've already been talking about here is compliance issues and certainly coding issues has to be documented right. So there has to be certainly an understanding with the scribe and the physician and how to do those things appropriately so the, the physician feels comfortable that the scribe is doing it appropriately. Um, And then also the scribe can anticipate oftentimes some tests that need to be done uh, and can go ahead and order those and just set the the whole scenario up so things can move on nicely. So those are uh, reasons I think that the scribes can be very helpful. It's not just about getting more patients in and quickly, 
but it's about helping address the physician burnout as well as helping to improve patient satisfaction overall. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Suzette Sutherland. Dr. Sutherland is Associate Professor in the Department of Urology at the University of Washington School of Medicine. And that's going to be a wrap for our 326th edition of Tucked In Tuesday. And hallelujah, and I want to thank our guests today, Dr. Larry Field, Sherry Poe Bernard, Marie Morin, Terry Fletcher, Glenn Cross, and our special guest whom you just heard, Dr. Suzette Sutherland. By the way, I encourage you to listen to our archive version of this broadcast later today. It's going to be on our website at ICD-10 Monitor. We're going to be back on Tuesday, June 7th for another edition of Tucked In Tuesday. There won't be any broadcast next Tuesday because of Memorial Day weekend. Until then, though, I'm Chuck Buck speaking on behalf of Holly Louie and everyone here at Tucked In Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Tucked In Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.